Well, good morning. Uh, it's lovely to be with you. I'm Andy. I'm another of the uh, church staff here, if we've not met. Uh, I don't know if any of you were out uh, during Storm Kieran uh, over the week. We were down south uh, when it passed by, although uh, we heard the, the tiles rattling in the house that we were staying in. Uh, but beyond that, a few leaves in the lawn, uh, we didn't witness some of the destruction uh, that others experienced. But if you will, uh, this morning, as we begin, picture yourself in a dark, stormy, restless night. Uh, you're out alone. The wind has been howling. The darkness is all-consuming. Strange noises have left you fretful, weary, and on edge. I don't know if any of you can actually relate to this. But what a relief and what a blessing it would be to finally see the dawn break, to watch the sun rise against a black drop of blue how your spirits would be lifted, how your heart would soar. Well, if you turn over the page uh, from where you are in the Church Bibles uh, to Samuel 21, just to page uh, 330, chapter 23, uh, we're presented with some of David's last words. And in verse 3 of chapter 23, we read these words. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. A just ruler, ruling in the fear of the Lord, is like the beauty of morning light after an anxious night, like the splendor of the sun shining on a cloudless morning, like the refreshing of a gentle shower on a warm day. Don't those things resonate with our deepest longings? Don't we yearn? in our world, uh, as Sarah wonderfully led our prayers for us this morning. Don't we long for rulers who will rule like that? For leaders of our nations, of our communities, in the church, even in our families. People who rule with justice, and in the fear of the Lord. Don't we long for those things? Well, to come back to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, where we've been uh, journeying uh, over the last couple of years, and in particularly over the last uh, couple of weeks and months, uh, we've transitioned from the rule of judges to kings. Uh, ruling over God's people. We've been presented in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel with two contenders, Saul and David. 
Saul sadly fails to fear the Lord. He disregards God's words. He disobeys his commands. He makes excuses and fails to act justly. And in judgment, God takes the kingdom from him. David, on the other hand, is a man after God's own heart. He does fear the Lord. He does honor and obey God. And God, in turn, in 2 Samuel 7, promises this. His house and his kingdom will endure forever, and his throne will be established forever. And by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 7, everything is looking so promising. But by chapter 11, our hopes have been dashed, haven't they? And over the last couple of months in particular, as we've journeyed uh, from chapter 13 all the way through to the end of chapter 20 last week, we've witnessed the awful calamity and the effects of David's adultery with Bathsheba on uh, the nation and on himself. But this morning, as we come to chapter 21... Uh, we're given a different uh, camera angle, if you like. Now, have a look at verse 1. Turn back with me to 2 Samuel 21. Uh, Verse 1, during the reign of David. Uh, We've cut away from the calamity of Absalom's rebellion and the aftermath of it. And we're now at some unknown point in David's 40-year reign. Uh, David sparing Mephibosheth because of his oath in verse 7 suggests that we're probably after chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. But beyond that, we're in the dark. And that's because these final four chapters of 2 Samuel act as a bit of an epilogue, uh, if you like, a summary of 1 and 2 Samuel. They've been carefully constructed, uh, and hopefully you've been given a handout this morning as you came in. Uh, The details of the construct of these four chapters uh, I've put there uh, on the top of the handout. I'm not going to go into them in great detail. We'll see them uh, work out, I hope, uh, over the next couple of weeks. But I would encourage you uh, to read chapters 21 all the way through to 24 to see how they're knitted together. And they show us that as great as David was, we need to look elsewhere to one of David's descendants to find the one who is going to rule justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, the one who will dawn on us like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Well, one commentator, as I said, has described 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, as one of the most difficult Bible stories in the Bible. It's no wonder that James was quite keen to swap when we initially put the rotor together. But I hope that as we reflect on the horror and the darkness of this story this morning, that the sun of righteousness would dawn in our hearts afresh. That we would see how wise, how sufficient the Lord Jesus Christ is compared to David when it comes to dealing with curses, when it comes to making atonement, 
and when it comes to seeing his battles through to completion. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And that's as true for this desperately shocking and difficult passage as it is for any other passage in the Old Testament. Our loving Heavenly Father has put this passage in the Bible to encourage us, to help us keep going in our Christian faith, and to give us hope, hope of something better, hope of something more beautiful, more just, more glorious. So let's turn to chapter 21. As we see, first of all, the king who caused a curse on the nation in verses 1 and 2. We know that leaders don't always make good decisions. Sometimes those decisions have a massive detrimental effect on their nation, as well as perhaps their business and their family. Saul was such a leader. Although he was chosen by God, he was very much the people's king. Uh, They were the ones who had rejected God's rule. They were the ones who wanted to be like the other nations. And as a head taller than his peers, Saul had the looks and stature of a king. But alas, his failure to fear the Lord, to trust him and obey him, was evident from the beginning. And it wasn't long before God rejected him. But despite that, Saul reigned for 42 years. And at some point during his reign, again, we're not told when, he put the Gibeonites to death, verse 1. Indeed, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, verse 2, he'd try to annihilate them. Uh, Now, at this point, a little bit of uh, background would be useful. Uh, The Gibeonites were one of the groups of people living in the Promised Land before Joshua led God's people in. Uh, We're given a bit of information about them there in verse 2. To go back to more information, we need to turn to Joshua chapter 9. They had heard about what God had done for his people, and out of respect for the Lord, uh, out of desire not to be annihilated themselves, uh, they came up with a cunning plan. Uh, Pretending they were from a far-off land, they sent a delegation to Joshua to make peace. Their plan worked. In their haste, God's people failed to consult God. They made an oath to these people that they thought were from a very long way away, and they promised peace. Three days later, God's people found out they were just from up the road. They weren't happy. But because of the oath they'd made, they say this in Joshua 9, verse 20, This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. 
And so the Gibeonites lived peacefully in Israel, serving as woodcutters and water carriers, that is, until Saul comes along. Now, we don't know why Saul went on a mass exercise of genocide. Uh, Perhaps it was Samuel's rebuke of him in 1 Samuel 15 for his failure to deal properly with the Amalekites. Uh, Maybe the Gibeonites were particularly vociferous in saying that Saul had killed thousands, but David ten thousands. We just don't know. But for one reason or another, Saul ignores the peace treaty that the nation had made in the Lord's name, and he embarks on a zealous mission of ethnic cleansing. For years, nothing seems to happen. But God saw, God does care, God won't allow his name to be dishonored, and at some point after Saul has died and David becomes king, God acts. Just as in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, the land cries out. We read about the land crying out over Abel's spilt blood. Well, in this case, the harvest fails. Prices rise, the food bank sees increased demand, there's a spike in unemployment and homelessness. These things happen. But the next year, it fails again. This is beginning to get serious. Hospitals are struggling to cope with the effects of malnourishment. The young and the old are dying of starvation. And by the third year, verse 1, it's catastrophic. You can imagine the mass graves being dug, can't you? Skin hanging limply over bony skeletons. This is a catastrophe. Three successive years. Something is wrong. So David seeks the face of the Lord. David turns to the one who can give understanding and insight. And when David turns to God, God graciously answers. Saul and his blood-stained house are to blame. Why it took so long for this famine to occur after the events, we don't know. God's ways are not our ways. But what is clear is that Saul's sin has devastating consequences. The whole nation is affected. As a representative of the nation, as the one under God, his failure to deal justly with the Gibeonites has brought about curses that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Sin is serious. And when it's God's leaders, his representatives who are guilty, well, it's the many and not just the few who are affected. It's a warning to us as leaders, isn't it? Those of us, whether it's in the home, in the community, in the nation, in the world. There's no such thing as private sin for those in positions of leadership. Thousands are affected by this famine. 
Well, David wisely turns to the Lord. He seeks his face. It's an indication of devotion, desperation, longing. And God mercifully answers. He doesn't leave David in the dark. He brings clarity and revelation to the situation. And it's a reminder of God's kindness to those who earnestly seek him. He shines a light on the problem. And that brings us to the next part, the king who attempts to make atonement, verses 2 to 14. Uh, The Gibeonites are summoned by David, and David sets about trying to make amends. Notice what he says in verse 3. What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? So that the land will be blessed, so that God's people will be blessed. David knows that the Gibeonites have been wronged. Something needs to be done. He knows God's honor and the blessing of God's people are at stake. And because Saul the perpetrator is already dead, well, something else needs to be done. And so, verse 4, we see him entering into negotiations to see what can be done to make things right. Now, the Gibeonites know that they're in no position to ask for anything. A ransom is not sufficient, and they don't have the authority to execute anyone. But that phrase, we don't have the right to put anyone in Israel to death, hints at what they're after. And after some encouragement from David, the request is made. Let seven of Saul's male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibber of Saul, the Lord's chosen one, perhaps ironically stated. And David agreed. To our modern ears, it's shocking, it's awful. But notice what's missing. David makes the same mistake that Joshua did when dealing with the Gibeonites. He failed to consult the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Gibeonites have an ability of coming between the Lord and his leaders. It may not be intentional, but neither Joshua nor here David Seek God's guidance once negotiations start. It's a lesson for us. Who are the, what are the situations in our lives that are like the Gibeonites, that prevent us coming to the Lord and seeking his guidance? Because prayerful consideration goes out the window. And first Joshua and now David give the Gibeonites what they want. David and Joshua fail to fear the Lord and instead give in to man. It's desperately sad. Well, in Numbers 35, verse 31, we read these words. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. They are to be put to death. And then going on to verse 33, do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed. 
except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. David is right that atonement needs to be made, that blood needs to be shed, that justice to be done requires the shedding of blood. But given that God had been the one who caused the famine, he should have been the one sought for the terms of atonement. And while the request for seven men uh, suggests completeness and restraint, uh, given the numbers that Saul would have undoubtedly killed in his uh, mass genocide exercise, David appears to have overlooked three things. Uh, He appears, first of all, to fail to acknowledge what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24.16. Now, in verse 1, we're told that it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. So there is perhaps an element of ambiguity. But it's hard to imagine that these seven men, young men, would have been involved in that genocide. And in Deuteronomy 24.16... We're told parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children to be put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Secondly, David fails to acknowledge the guidance of Leviticus, where time and again the blood of animals is substituted for the blood of people. And then thirdly, while he graciously spares Mephibosheth, to keep his oath in the Lord's name to Jonathan, in contrast to Saul, that the writer is clearly putting there in contrast to the way that Saul dismisses uh, the oath made in the Lord's name to the Gibeonites, it does seem awkward, difficult, that David is so willing to perhaps break the oath he made to Saul in 1 Samuel 24, where he promises not to kill off Saul's descendants. Maybe he figured he wasn't killing them all off. does just seem a little bit tricky. And so, without consulting God, David agrees to those Gibeonite terms. Seven of Saul's descendants are selected They're sent for, they're seized, and they're handed over to be executed and exposed. It makes for brutal reading. But it's more accurate to read that the Gibeonites hanged them on the mountain before the Lord in verse 9. And that's an important point, because in Deuteronomy 21, we read that if someone's guilty of a capital offense and is put to death, their body exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on a pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so by not giving them a proper burial the day they die, David's guilty of desecrating the land. 
Now, the details of verses 8 to 14 are heart-wrenching. The selection process, the handing over, the manner of execution, the little note that they all fell together. At the beginning of the barley harvest, not that there was one because there was a famine in the land, but it was such a horrific event that it was clearly remembered. And then on top of that, we get the desperate devotion of a desolate mother. Keeping watch for weeks, if not months, over the decaying bodies of her sons and nephews. We want to move on. The mere thought of it is utterly appalling. But the text invites us to linger, to let the horror of it all sink in. We're encouraged to feel Rizpah's pain and anguish, to draw alongside her in her desolation and devotion, to have our hearts break with hers over the desperate suffering, anguish of injustice. Because while David's actions do eventually bring atonement for Saul's sin, ultimately it only happens when David finally gives the bodies a decent burial. It's only then that God answers prayer on behalf of the land. For all David's greatness, this incident shows that David can't deliver the justice and righteousness we long for. His attempts at atonement, while ultimately successful, ultimately lead to further anguish and suffering. Well, moving on, we turn briefly to verses 15 to 22 uh, and see further signs that despite David's greatness, he leaves us wanting more. As we see, uh, thirdly, the king whose frailty stopped him for fighting. In verse 15, the camera angle changes again. We're presented with four different battles, all against the descendants of Rapha and Gath. Again, we don't know exactly when these occurred. Uh, however, all these four Philistine hard men are killed by David's men. And it brings to fulfillment God's promise in 2 Samuel 3, where we read, The Lord had promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. It's a reminder that under David, God brought salvation. The enemies of God's people, despite their might and power, despite their taunting, were cut down, never to rise or to mock again. But while these incidents feature as highlights under David's leadership, they also reveal a frailty in David's saving power and his inability to see battles through to completion. Have a look at verse 15. David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines and David grew weary. A bit further on, and Ishbi Benob said he would kill him. The rescuer needs rescuing. Fortunately for David, Abishai is on hand to rescue him, verse 17. But the result is that David is prevented from ever going out to battle again. 
so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. David's fighting days are done. He's become a liability to his own men. And for all his greatness, for all his ability to save and rescue people, for his fear of the Lord and desire to bring about justice, he leaves us wanting. We're left looking for one who really will dawn on us like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth, who will truly rule justly and in the fear of the Lord. Well, as we close, how precious isn't it to have such a king? A king who satisfies our longing and need for a just ruler who rules in the fear of the Lord. A king who, instead of bringing a curse on the nation, becomes a curse. That God's people might receive his blessing. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. How precious it is to have one who, instead of offering others up for atonement, offers himself. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. And how precious is it to have one who rather than grow weary and is unable to see his battles through, sees all his battles through to their completion. Hebrews 2, we read, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came down into our broken, cursed, blood-stained world. He offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement. He was raised up on a pole that he might raise us up to a world where curses, where suffering, where anguish and grief are no more. Rizba's pain and her anguish at the foot of those seven poles surely points us to the foot of that other pole, invites us to linger in wonder and gratitude, doesn't it? At another broken, and blooded son hanging there limply for you and for me. Jesus did what David couldn't do. And today, this morning, he comes alongside us in our weaknesses, our struggles, our anguish, our pain to lead us with complete justice 
and amazing grace, that we by his spirit might press on in hope, hope of something better, hope of something more beautiful, hope of something more just, hope of something more glorious. In a moment, we're going to sing about the Lord Jesus, encouraging ourselves to turn our eyes to him once again. But before we sing, as the music group come up, why don't we pause for a moment? Why don't you take yourselves in your mind's eye to the foot of that pole, the foot of the cross, to look up and see Jesus' blooded, broken body hanging there for you and for me, making complete atonement, bearing the curse, seeing his battle through to completion.